now that Saul is completely beside himself with envy and wrath against David, desperately trying to preserve the kingdom for himself, he does everything in his power to kill God's anointed. This is the 41st sermon in the series Dynasty, Lordship and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. Our old cover reading coming from 1 Samuel in chapter 19, the entirety of the chapter, chapter 19, 24 verses. Beloved of the Lord, this is God's word unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And Saul spake to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David, and Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, seeketh to kill thee. Now therefore, I pray thee, take heed to thyself until the morning, and abide in a secret place and hide thyself. And I will go out and stand before my father in the field where thou art, and I will commune with my father of thee, and what I see that I will tell thee. And Jonathan spake good of David unto Saul his father, and said unto him, Let not the king sin against his servant against David, because he had not sinned against thee, and because his works have been to thee word very good. For he did put his life in his hand and slew the Philistine. And the Lord wrought a great salvation for all Israel. Thou sawest it and didst rejoice. Wherefore then, wilt thou sin against innocent blood to slay David without a cause? And Saul hearkened unto the voice of Jonathan. And Saul sware, as the Lord liveth, he shall not be slain. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan showed him all those things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as in times past. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and slew them with a great slaughter, and they fled from him. And the evil spirit from the Lord was upon Saul as he sat in his house with his javelin in his hand. And David played with his hand. And Saul sought to smite David, even to the wall with the javelin, But he slipped away out of Saul's presence and he smote the javelin into the wall and David fled and escaped that night. Saul also sent messengers unto David's house to watch him and to slay him in the morning. And Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, If thou save not thy life tonight, tomorrow thou shalt be slain. So Michal let David down through a window and he went and fled and escaped. And Michal took an image and laid it in the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair for his bolster and covered it with a cloth. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. And Saul sent messengers again to see David, saying, Bring him to me in the bed that I may slay him. And when the messengers were come in, behold, there was an image in the bed with a pillow of goat's hair for his bolster. And Saul said unto Michal, Why hast thou deceived me so, and sent away mine enemy, that he is escaped? And Michal answered Saul, He said unto me, Let me go, why should I kill thee? So David fled and escaped, and came to Samuel to Ramah, and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and dwelt in Nahoth. And it was told Saul, saying, Behold, David is at Nahoth in Ramah. And Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as appointed over them, the Spirit of God was upon the messengers of Saul. And they also prophesied. And when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they prophesied likewise. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they prophesied also. Then when he also to Ramah, and came to a great well that is in Siku, and he asked and said, Where are Samuel and David? 
And one said, Behold, they be at Naoth in Ramah. And he went thither to Naoth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God was upon him also. And he went on and prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he stripped off his clothes also, and prophesied before Samuel in the like manner, and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Wherefore they say, Is Saul also among the prophets? Paul writing to the church at Galatia. Galatians in chapter 5, beginning in verse 19 through verse 24. By the same Spirit, the Apostle writes to the church, Now, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh, with the affections and lusts. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now at this point, Saul is not only fearful of David, wherein, as you remember, he could not even look at David, he could not bear even to look upon him, for in him he saw God. But at this point, he is desperate, very desperate, to have him killed. And that is the nature of man. Out of the evil, reprobate heart of unregenerate man, murder lurks. It was this way with Saul, as it is with all tyrants. Tyrants are not only control freaks, and that is what they are. They are freaks of what was intended for man to be. Mankind by nature, as it is with all tyrants, as it was with Saul, they are murderers. And in Saul's desperation to be rid of David, so as to be rid of God, remember he doesn't only want to get rid of David, he wants to get rid of the image of God in David, because he wants to be as God. So in Saul's desperation, as desperate as he was, he seeks the aid of his son. Notice, And Saul spake to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. Now this command was not only an insanely idiotic request, it was a clear violation of the sixth commandment, which God gave through Moses to all Israel. And yet Saul continues to desire murder. Now at this point, however, he not only desires it, he commands it, and not only commands it, generally speaking, but he commands his son and his servants. And that is what tyrants do. They dictate, they command, they threaten, because all they want is their will to be done, and this will, in this case, was murder. And this is what happens when the hand of God is removed from man. Man will go headlong into destruction, and he will sink desperately into tyranny. Just watch some of the American tyrants of our day or the American tyrants of any day, or the tyrants of world history. Just look at what they are and how they respond. They are desperate men, impatient men, desiring to get their way no matter what it costs. They resort to threatening, 
executive legislation, unconstitutional mandates. They levy sanctions against their own citizens, private businesses, corporations, churches, ministers, and anyone that dares to defend individual conscience and liberty. It's a wonder why Saul's men didn't pause for just a moment. And you wonder how incredible Saul's men, not for a moment did they pause to recognize who and what Saul was and remove him immediately from office. Why? Because they too were in confederacy with him. They too were wicked. They too were evil. We see much of the same thing here in America. Too many within our own nation are not recognizing, or at least not with one voice resisting, those who seek to destroy liberty and the freedom of conscience and religion and Christianity from the face of the national scene. They're not calling for these men to be removed from office. They're just going along. Going along so as to get along. To hold on to their positions of power. Saul is now experiencing, at this point, blind rage. And he will drag anyone and everyone into his diabolical scheme just to satisfy his lust for power, even if it means destroying his own son in the process. Now, if you remember, this is the same Saul that would even have killed his own son for violating a non-law mandate. And now... Failing to kill David, he wants his son to help him. And that's what makes his request so insanely crazy. Consider for a moment what brought Saul to this point. Prideful ambition, power, lust. Saul wanted to be hailed as God, and he thought he deserved it. He thought he deserved the kingdom. He thought he, even though he failed to obey God, he thought he should still have the kingdom. And I could, you know, I could just see him now. You know, when you read the scriptures, you have to envision this man so beside himself, insane, not able to satisfy his lust by killing David, having his kingdom in the balance. I could just see him sitting in his secret chamber while no one is looking, stamping his feet like a little child crying, why won't they listen to me? Like like a little child, wah, wah, mommy, mommy, why can't we kill him? And that's what self-serving, that deceptive pride, that deceptive prideful man looks like when he's not satisfied. A little child wanting to get his way. And when that self-serving prideful tyrant is not satisfied, he seeks to not only destroy his adversary, but everyone in the process. He gets everyone on his side, or at least he tries. And this is the turning point in the historical narrative. Saul has abandoned all subtlety in his quest to kill David, who has now become his sworn enemy, his sworn adversary. Now remember, as a type of Adam, or, or better put this way, as a type of the old Adamic nature that seeks to be his God, that nature, like Saul, will do anything to destroy the witness of Christ. David's first move, and this situation was to realize that he had to finally abandon all hope in being at peace with Saul. He's finally going to come to that point where he's going to recognize 
that there is no hope for reconciliation. And this is a lesson for us as well. Whenever sinful man abandons all subtlety in his murderous hatred against Christ and his body, the church, a peaceful resolution is no longer attainable. When confronted by this kind of hatred, one must abandon all hope in appeasement. And that's the nature of the flesh as well. When you think about just our flesh, when we're dealing with sin, we cannot make friends with our enemy. We cannot make friends with the sin that is so easily within our members and does trip us up. That sin must be killed. You cannot make peace with the old sinful nature of the flesh. The Spirit of God is contrary against the fleshly nature of the believer. And this is why it's very important not to make your peace with your sin. And we coddle ourselves. So often we coddle ourselves. Well, we say, well, we're weak, or I'm having a really bad day, so I'm able to, to satisfy my lust this way or that way. That is not the testimony of the believer. Because if the Spirit of God dwells in you, that Spirit is contrary to the flesh. Notice what the Apostle says. The Apostle Paul says this in Galatians 5, 16 and 17. Notice what he says. This I say then, walk in the Spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and these are contrary. That word is adversary. They're adversarial against one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would. You've got an adversary living inside you and you cannot make peace with that enemy. Paul is saying that the spirit of God that indwells his people sets itself powerfully, without excuse, without compromise, against the fleshly nature of the old man in the same way that the flesh does against the new nature of the redeemed. He uses the word contrary. He uses the word adversary. And so it is the fleshly nature of the rebellious man that is an adversary to the will and the spirit of God. But the Spirit of God is more powerful than the flesh. And therefore, there should be no excuse to bow before our sin, to coddle our sin, to allow that sin to overtake us and beset us. Saul was not a redeemed man. He had no safeguards against his flesh taking over his entire fabric of being. In Saul's desperation, he not only engages Jonathan in a plot to murder David, which was bad enough, he seeks to bring his own daughter, David's wife, Michal, promoting her to aid in the deed of murder as well. You have a man here that has no shame. He doesn't care about destroying anyone. And the only thing he cared about was himself. Now, let's point this out again. Once again, you have a man here that is absolutely insane because of sin. Saul knew that the Lord was with David. He may also have suspected that it was David that Samuel was referring to when he told Saul that the kingdom was taken from him and given to another. He might have finally recognized, well, wait a minute, maybe it's this David that Samuel was prophesying about that my kingdoms will be given to him. So if I kill him, I'll keep the kingdom for myself. 
And that was probably the reason why he wanted David killed. Especially after seeing David's popularity increase and Saul's popularity diminish. But what is so crazy about this entire scenario is that by pursuing David in order to kill him, he was actually seeking to frustrate God's will and perhaps even kill God's witness. But you can't frustrate God's will. And a man like Saul should have known that. But in his blind rage, and that's what happens when God takes his hand of restraint off of a man, Saul was functioning under blind rage, and because of that blind rage, he was unable to discern Jonathan's and Michal's love for David. They loved him, but he didn't see it. He didn't care to see it. Note the first part of verse 2. But Jonathan and Saul's son delighted much in David. Jonathan delighted much in David. Saul also failed to recognize that the people loved David also, even his own servants, at least most of them. But none of that mattered for Saul, because Saul was bent on one thing, murder. Understanding Saul's murderous intention, Jonathan warns David of his father's scheme in verse 2 and following. And Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, seeketh to kill thee. Now therefore, I pray thee, take heed to thyself until the morning and abide in a secret place. Hide yourself. And there's a time for that. There's a time for hiding. Remember we said there's a time for fighting. There's a time for fleeing. There's a time for hiding. Hide yourself until the morning and abide in a secret place and hide thyself and I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where thou art and I will commune with my father of thee and what I see I will tell you. I will spy out my father's intention. Now this action is also a turning point in the narrative. Jonathan is deliberately at this point, once again actually, deliberately switching sides. He is forging an alliance with David against his father. Not only against his father, but against the king of Israel. He is forging an alliance with David against the king, and that was treason. And yet, this was right. Jonathan, no matter what, wanted to do what was right, even if it meant going against his father and going against the king and being guilty of treason, he knew it was right. And that gives us another glimpse at the character of Jonathan. He was not an ignorant man. Quite the contrary. He's a wise young man. He knew that his actions would be considered treasonous. But like the founders of our nation, Jonathan knew that he was right to go against the king and his laws because the king and his laws were unrighteous. As Patrick Henry stated, and I'm sure Jonathan would agree, if this be treason... Let's make the most of it. And that's what he was doing. Jonathan then tries to reason with his father. And here's another character trait of of the young man. Let's try it just one more time. A last ditch effort to reason with my father. So he tries to reason with his father, acting as a mediator and a peacemaker, because blessed are the peacemakers, of course, between the two. And we see this in in verse 4. And five, and Jonathan spake good of David unto Saul his father, and said unto him, notice what he says, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he had not sinned against thee, and because his works have been to thee very good. For he did put his life in his hand, and slew the Philistine, speaking about Goliath, and the Lord wrought a great salvation for all Israel. Thou sawest, and didst rejoice. Wherefore then wilt thou sin against innocent blood to slay David without a cause? Notice he is laying out 
all of the reasons why Saul would be unjust and wrong, frankly, in slaying David. Observe his reasoning. First, let not the king sin against his servant because he has not sinned against thee. In other words, Jonathan is saying there is no justification Biblically for killing David. He hasn't done anything worthy of death. He hasn't done anything against you. He has not sought to hurt you personally, Saul, or the kingdom, or your office. There's no legal reason. You have no legal cause to kill David. Killing him would be then the equivalent of shedding innocent blood. And that was the initial appeal to Saul, hoping that there would be some glimmer of reason in the man. Secondly, Jonathan next, in a very crafty fashion, knowing his father's infatuation with defeating the Philistines, remember now, he was brought into the kingly office in order to be captain over God's army, particularly to kill the Philistines, to destroy the Philistines. That was the reason. So, in a very crafty fashion, Knowing his father's infatuation with defeating the Philistine, he points to how David successfully fought for Saul and for Israel against the Philistines and delivered them from bondage. And that was a gutsy move on Jonathan's part because it could have backfired. In fact, this might have reminded Saul that David was the one, not Saul, who killed Goliath, and that David was the one who killed ten thousands while Saul only his thousands. This might have reminded him of something that he said, well, wait a minute, that's why I want him killed, because he killed Goliath and I didn't. That's why I want him killed, because he kills ten thousands and I only kill my thousands. So this could have backfired, and yet it worked. As Jonathan had hoped, it worked, and Saul probably thought that if the Philistine had heard then of David's murder. Just think, if the Philistines hear that you had David killed, executed, they would then deduce a number of things. Perhaps there was schism in the nation and knowing David, the chief warrior against Goliath and against the Philistines was no longer alive, he would be no threat to them. They might muster their army again with full assurance that they would win. And of course, this will backfire upon you. So that was a very gutsy move on Jonathan's part. Third point, and there's a lesson in this point for us as well. Even though Saul was determined to kill David, he was able at least at this point to be reasoned with. One last time, it seemed as if he could be reasoned with. So, verse 6, And Saul hearkened unto the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swear. Now, that didn't really mean anything, because Saul's a liar as well as a murderer. But he does swear, and he says, As the Lord liveth, he shall not be slain. So here in this, Jonathan calls David back to secure the reunion and the reconciliation between the two. In verse 7, And Jonathan calls David, and Jonathan shows him all those things. And Jonathan brings David to Saul, and he was in his presence as in time past. So he's brought back into the royal house. Now the next verse seems to give some insight as to why Saul was willing to listen to reason. I do not believe that he really wanted peace. Of course, we're going to see this in a moment, that he didn't want peace. Because this kind of a man does not want peace. He wants domination. He wants David back in his presence, not running, not hiding, so that he might again gain opportunity to slay him himself. He is going to listen to reason to a point also because Jonathan gives him an argument because of an impending Philistine 
armament against Israel once again. You see, Saul may have known of an impending war with the Philistines. That might have made him more susceptible to embracing David. That could have been one of the reasons as well. But he wanted him close. We might also deduce that Saul never intended to be at peace and lied to his son just to get David close by. We see in verse 8 that there was war again. God providentially orchestrates more war with the Philistines. And of course, David goes out and he's the hero. He fights against the Philistines. He slays them with a great slaughter and they flee from him. Just think if Saul had killed David, how that would have changed the history of Israel. So having returned to the king's favor, David acts valiantly against the Philistines, supporting Saul, supporting his authority, supporting Israel's freedom. But the honeymoon period between Saul and David was of course, very short-lived. No sooner than David is victorious over the Philistines, as expected, Saul reverts back to his murderous intentions. But this time, Saul would again attempt to murder David himself. And the evil spirit, verse 9 and following, from the Lord was upon Saul as he sat in his house with his javelin in his hand, and David played with his hand. And Saul sought to smite David, even to the wall with the javelin. But David slipped away out of Saul's presence, and he smote the javelin into the wall. David fled and escaped that night. Now remember, David's a very cunning individual. I'm sure he didn't trust the man. He wanted to see proof whether he could be trusted, and of course the proof was not there. Notice what the scripture says. The evil spirit was from the Lord. Now, since the scriptures are crystal clear that God does not tempt any man to do evil, we need to understand just what this verse means. Note again James' declaration. James chapter 1, verse 13 through 15. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man, especially Saul at this point, is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts and enticed, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. See, all God needs to do at this point, to bring a man to the depths of his own depravity, is to take his hand of restraint off of him, and that man, like Saul, will plunge headlong into the most horrific sin. And that is exactly what happened to Saul. God had softened Saul's heart for just a moment, as Jonathan reasoned with him, so that David was afforded to return back into the king's court, so David could rout out once again the Philistines for the preservation of Israel. But then, in order to show Saul's true evil nature and the intensity of his hatred against David, God lifted his hand of restraint leaving Saul to his own maddening murderous sin and he seeks to kill David once again. Jesus explains this this way in Matthew 15 and Mark 7. In Matthew 15, 19 we read, For out of the heart, out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. And of course this speaks of Saul. Mark 7, 21 through 23. For from within... Notice, from within, from within the nature of man, without the restraint of God's grace, from within, out of the heart of men, proceeds evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. Saul was defiled from his own sinful nature. Simply put, all Saul was doing, all he was doing was acting according to his own depraved, his own depraved and evil heart. And so having murder in his heart, 
Saul takes action. He seeks to smite David even to the wall, but David escapes. Now this act further shows just how desperate, just how desperate Saul was to kill his rival. By the grace of God, David escapes, fully aware that from that time forward, he could no longer trust Saul. That was it. It was over. No going back. But Saul is not defeated. Determined to kill David. He is rather more committed in killing God's man by sending spies to act as assassins to David and Mikhail's home. The command for the spies was, watch him. Watch David until the morning and then we will prepare to kill him. So Saul, verse 11, sends messengers unto David's house to watch him and to slay him in the morning. Now that's quite odd. Why in the morning? Why not, if you're going to have a, an, a tactical assault, why not in the evening? Why not at 2 o'clock in the morning? Why not when they're fast asleep? Why in the morning? Why not in the darkness of night where, where no one can see? Why not hide yourself by the night? Well, practically speaking, Saul tells them to go in the morning because he doesn't want his daughter Mikhail killed by mistake. If the assassins wait until the morning, they are less likely to kill Mikhail by mistake. And here again, Saul miscalculates David's popularity and Mikhail's love for him. Notice how God is blinding the man. The wicked father cannot even keep his own children loyal. They're both rebelling because of the extreme wickedness of their father. A very sad situation. And so, Mikhail, in love with David, warns him and hatches a counter plan to her father. And Mikhail, David's wife, told him, saying, If thou save not thy life tonight, tomorrow thou shalt be slain. And of course, she didn't want him slain. Adam Clark observes this. The commentator says this. To slay David in the morning was so that they might be able to distinguish between him and Mikhail, his wife. For had they attempted his life in the night season, there would have been some danger to Mikhail's life. Besides, Saul wished to represent him as a traitor and consequently to attack him was justifiable at any time, even in the fullest daylight. End quote. Verse 12 gives us some insight as to the cunning of David's wife, Mikhail. Verse 12, So Mikhail let David down through a window and he went and fled and escaped. Now Clark explains the situation in some detail. He says, As Saul's messengers were sent to David's house to watch him, they would naturally guard the gate or lie in wait in that place by which David would come out. Mikael, seeing this, led him down to the ground through a window, probably at the back part of the house, and there being neither entrance nor issue that way, the liars in wait were easily eluded. Now this strategy was very cunning, but it was also used before. And it will be used again in the future. It was used by both Rahab and the disciples to save the spies and the Apostle Paul from those that sought murder. We read in in Joshua 2.15, Then she, Rahab, let them down by a cord, the disciples, those spies, by a cord through the window. For her house was upon the town wall and she dwelt upon the wall. And she said unto them, Get you to the mountain, let's... The pursuers meet you and hide yourselves there three days until the pursuers be returned and afterward may you go your way. So she brings them down through a window. Take note that as Paul increased in strength and confounded the Jews at Damascus, 
they too, like Saul, became filled with murderous intention. And this is the same scenario we find with Saul and with Rahab. As he grew in strength and wisdom and popularity, Saul wanted him dead in the same way as the Damascus Jews wanted the Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, dead. Notice Acts chapter 9, beginning of verse 22. But Saul increased, this is Saul of Tarsus, increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. And after that, many days were fulfilled. The Jews took counsel to kill him, but their lying in wait was known of Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down by a wall in a basket, presumably through a window. The interesting aspect of these incredible escapes is the fact that each escaped through a window, down through the wall, outside of the uh, abode, through a window. Now, why is the window so important? Well, practically, we see why it's important. It bypasses the doorway, it bypasses the gate where a natural escape might take place and where all the watchers and the pursuers might be watching in order to snare you when you get out of the doorway or when you get out of the gate. But I believe there's a more symbolic, and there's always a symbology here, a more symbolic aspect to the window. Now, according to theologian and renowned expert on biblical symbolism, Benjamin Keach, he believes that the word window used either in its singular form or plural form windows, or when a window is alluded to, it is used to ascribe heaven itself. Notice what he says. Windows are ascribed to heaven, the habitation of God, out of which he has, as it were, a prospect and sends good or evil upon men. Now notice the scriptures he cites. He cites the following verses to substantiate his claim. Genesis 7.11 In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened. 2 Kings 7, 1 and following. Then Elisha said, Hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. Then a Lord, on whose hand the king leaned, answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? And he said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shall not eat thereof. Isaiah twenty four eighteen and Isaiah fifty four eleven and following. And it shall come to pass that he who fleeth from the noise of the fear shall fall into the pit, and he that cometh up out of the midst of the pit shall be taken in a snare, for the windows from on high are open, and the foundations of the earth do shake. O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest, and not comforted, Behold, I will lay thy stones with fair colors and lay thy foundations with sapphires and I will make thy windows of agates and thy gates of carbuncles and all thy borders of pleasant stones and all thy children shall be taught of the Lord and great shall be the peace of thy children in righteousness. And this is all because the windows are open. Okay, the windows are open and the windows of agates are displayed. In righteousness shall thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear from the terror, and it shall not come nigh thee. Malachi, finally, Malachi 3.10. 
Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. So the windows here, it seems, are speaking of God's blessings. And so it seems as if when we apply the idea of escaping evil men to a window, as in the story of Rahab, David, and the Apostle Paul, we might understand it to be God's direct heavenly blessing involved in their escape and in their protection as well as their preservation. And so Mikkel lets down David through a window, and by God's grace, he flees from the assassins and escapes the murderous plan of the apostate king Saul. So Mikael let down David through a window and he went and fled and escaped. But Mikael's deception is not yet complete. Notice verse 13. And Mikael took an image and laid it in the bed. I mean, he, she could have turned around and said, oh, he's not here, he left. But she doesn't. She continues with the deception. And Mikael took an image and laid it in the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair for his bolster and covered it with a cloth. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. In other words, he's sick. He can't, he, can't meet, he can't meet the king. And Saul, hearing this, sent messengers back to see David and didn't really care he was sick. He said, bring him to me even in the bed, even in that sick bed, and I'm going to slay him. Now perhaps hoping to dissuade her father from carry out his dreadful plan, Michaela tries to buy some time. So she says, he's sick, go back and tell the king. And at that time, you know, David was running, he was hiding, he was getting more time, she's very cunning. But of course, Saul is determined. And so he decides to kill him himself, and he says, bring him to me. Bring him to me that I may slay him, that I, I will do this thing. I don't care if he's sick or not, I'll kill him myself, even if he's sick. Especially since he's sick, because then, the hero of Israel, the warrior against the Philistines, will be weak. And I'm going to get him when he's weak. Because if he's in full strength, maybe I'm not going to be able to kill him. Maybe he'll escape again like he did so many times from my spear throwing. So once again, this shows Saul's cowardice. He's emboldened to kill David even by himself since he believes David is helpless because he's sick and cannot resist. So tyranny and tyrannical men are always brave when their adversaries are stripped of any means of resistance or when they're hiding behind a POTUS podium. And so the obedient reprobate assassins return to fetch David from his sickbed only to find that they have been deceived. And when the messengers were come in, behold, there was an image in the bed with a pillow of goat's hair for his bolster. I find that quite amusing. You have Saul the goat being fooled by a bunch of goat's hair. Obviously angered by this. Perhaps even confused as to why his daughter would betray her father. But note her continued cunning and deceit. She could have said, I love him. I'm going to protect him. But she didn't. She continues the charade. She claims that David threatened to kill her. Notice, and Saul said unto Michal, Why hast thou deceived me so? And sent away mine enemy, that he has escaped. And Michal answered Saul and said, He said unto me, Let me go. Why should I kill thee? I was afraid, Daddy. This was brilliant manipulation. She saves David while still keeping Saul's confidence so as to remain privy to any other scheme, any other attempt that her father might have to kill her husband. 
The way I see it is she followed the, the Vito Colleone Godfather rule. She kept her friend close, but her enemy closer. So, verse 18, David fled and escaped and came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done. Now, verse 19 gives us further insight as to the degree of Saul's reach through his kingdom. Now, this is very important. Saul obviously had many spies. I'll elaborate on this later on in subsequent sermons, but he had many spies. And they were all reporting back to him as to the whereabouts of David. It is even incredible to know how many spies Saul had. Everywhere David went, as we're going to see, everywhere he went. He went to this cave, he went to that cave, he went to the wilderness, he went here, he went there, he went to the mountain. Saul's people knew exactly where he was And this will always be the case with tyrants. They will always have their spies. They will always have those that will obey them to the point of destroying the righteous. And this is a lesson for us, especially in the day which we live. And so it was told Saul as to where David was held up. He is at Nahoth in Ramah. So hearing this, Saul sends his troops, his goons, to capture him and bring him back to Saul so that he might be unjustly executed. But to Saul's astonishment and to his consternation, God intervenes once again in behalf of David and frustrates Saul's plan by causing Saul's messengers to become prophets. And this was the undermining of the entire campaign that Saul had hatched to capture David. Notice verse 20. And Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as appointed over them, the Spirit of God intervenes. And he causes these messengers of Saul to prophesy. And when it was told Saul, he sends other messengers And then they prophesy. And then a third time, he sends a third set of messengers and they prophesy, being entirely beside himself. And you could just imagine the man. What is going on? What is God doing? I thought God was going to deliver him into my hands because the kingdom is mine. It's mine. Like a little child. It's mine. It's mine. It's mine. I'm losing my patience. I'm becoming very impatient because the kingdom is mine and he's not listening to me. He's not coming to me so I can kill him. There's nothing new under the sun, my friends. There's nothing new under the sun. Tyrants are tyrants. Tyrants will be tyrants and tyrants act like tyrants and there's nothing new under the sun. So here Saul is completely beside himself. So hearing this, Saul says, that's it. I'm going to do it myself. I can't rely on anybody. I am going to do it myself. I will get the job done. But beloved, God will not be frustrated. And Saul succumbs to the power of God as all tyrants must succumb and joins in with the other prophets, making him unable to carry out his diabolical plan. And when he also came to Ramah, he begins to prophesy. And the Spirit of God was upon him also. And he went on and prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he stripped off his clothes also. He tore his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and lay down naked all that night and all that day. And of course, they ask the question once again, is Saul also among the prophets? Is he among the prophets? This is a fish out of water. Just like when when Congress says, you know, we we sought the Lord and we prayed and and now we're going to legislate the killing of of babies uh, even after they're born. Saul was a fish out of water prophesying and praying to the Lord, having the word of God upon his lips. But the stripping of Saul's clothes 
is very significant. We don't read of the messengers having stripped off their clothes, just Saul. Stripping off his clothes, almost insanely babbling, prophesying before Samuel all day and all night. Stripping of the clothes is significant. Since he is now presented before Samuel, David and the others as a man wholly naked before God in his pride, in his arrogancy, in his murderous, tyrannical intent. A man stripped, brought to nakedness before God without a cloak of covering, without the regeneration. And once again, the question is asked, is Saul among the prophets? A rhetorical question. No, he is not to be among the prophets, but God has frustrated Saul's attempt at murder. We will continue next time when we follow David, now completely convinced that Saul will kill him. We follow David in his exile from Saul who is and will always be until the day of his death a wicked, murderous tyrant, the illegitimate king of Israel. And this we shall do, God helping us, unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.